The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. It's so good to be sharing with you today. Uh, the idea of bringing math into chapel is not an April Fool's joke. Uh, we are going to actually look at a little math. There's going to be some, some lessons to be, to be learned today. Uh, I want to thank you for the beautiful singing, specifically for the harmony uh, that was throughout the singing today. I love harmony. I think it's a special way in which we can worship God through the sound he makes, he's provided for us. Um, I debate sometimes, you know, the question of what's more beautiful to me, looking at mountains or hearing harmony, and I struggle back and forth with those all the time. So I hope you do too. Uh, I want to look at a, a specific verse today, and yes, we're going to do some math, don't worry. Um, <clears throat> Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And I'm sure you've heard uh, many people speak on this passage. I'm going to send it through a different lens today, through a, a lens you might not be thinking about before, that does bring a mathematical lens on it. A lot of times we focus on this phrase, the fear of the Lord. I want to kind of focus on the second part, uh, is the beginning of wisdom and what that means to someone who, who studies mathematics. What does a beginning mean and what are the consequences of those things? We're going to take a journey, but I don't want you to lose what you sang with Dr. Harding earlier. We're coming back around to that. It will all tie together in the end. So Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. I've reflected on this verse many times, and it keeps growing and, and blossoming in my mind uh, to have more and more impact on every area of life, every area of thinking. And I'd like you to walk you through sort of my meditations on this verse, but we need a geometry lesson first. So this is the only, oh, no, the moans. <laughs> Shaking your head back there. Okay, this is an easy one. So we have a triangle. And we have angle X, angle Y, and angle Z in our triangle. And those three angles add up to 180 degrees. Wonderful, you're doing great. All right, round of applause. So the question is why does it add up to 180 degrees? Because <laughs> the teacher said so. No, all right? So. Mathematics is not like science in its ways of determining what is true and what is not true. So when we look at this triangle, it's not 180 degrees because we cut out 10 million triangles and we keep measuring them and the angles add up to 180. Adds up to 180, adds up to 180. So we come up with a scientific law, the law of the triangle. That's not how math works, okay? Math is a logical structure that has to proceed from one step to the next to the next. So we have the totals 180, but we're going to back up one step. How did we get here? Uh, you'll observe in this diagram, we have two parallel lines, okay? And you see a triangle in there, right? Okay, so far it's a good triangle. A, B, C is in there. We have angle A, angle B, and angle C. And we have parallel lines. And you'll probably remember a word that, that scared you at one point, a transversal. So those little diagonals that are coming down, okay? You're like, you're, you're taking me back to 10th grade geometry and this is not a good experience. People are walking out right now. Okay, so when we have two parallel lines cut by a transversal, we have what are called alternate interior angles. Angle one and angle A are on alternate sides of the transversal 
and they're between the parallel lines. So the alternate interior angle theorem says that angle one is the same as angle A. It also says that angle two is the same as angle C. Good, you learned something, good. So how do we get to the 180? Well, if you look at the top, angle one plus angle B plus angle two form a straight line, and that's 180. And since one is the same as A and two is the same as C, A plus B plus C must also be 180, all right? So we prove the theorem. And this theorem is based upon some other assumptions. So we back our way down. We have assumptions about parallel lines. How we work with parallel lines leads to this alternate interior angle theorem, which leads to the triangle is 180 degrees. Okay, so we're gonna keep backing up, backing up. The 180 degrees is just a consequence, just a logical consequence of some things that were already in place, and there's things about parallel lines. So here's another question, harder question. So we're in a plane, and we have an infinite straight line L. I only see, you only see a part of it there. It keeps going on and on and on. How many, and we have a point P that's not on the line up there. How many infinitely extending straight lines go through P and do not intersect L? We just have the one, right? Good, so far so good. So that's, that's a, a piece of knowledge we're going to need. All right, let's go back in time. It's a mathematician named Euclid. By the way, uh, Euclid was not the greatest mathematician. We're gonna talk about one of the greatest today. I hope you think of your favorite mathematician at some point today, because we'll be talking about a number of mathematicians you don't have a favorite mathematician? Okay, uh, so there's this mathematician Euclid, and he, he wrote what's called the Elements. It's basically our geometry book, all right? It's, our, it's, it's a basis for geometry, it was written a couple thousand years ago. And in Euclid's Elements, here's the structure. He starts with five assumptions, all right? Five postulates. And from those five postulates, everything else is logically built from those five postulates, all right? Uh, the kind of, weird wording, so I'll kind of summarize them quickly. Postulate one says if you have two points, you can make a segment between them. All right, pretty self-evident. Postulate two says you can take a segment, continue it infinitely in, continuously in a straight line. Postulate three says if you have a segment, you can whip it around and draw a circle with it, okay? Postulate four says every time you have right angles, they're always equal to each other. These are four very simple statements that you can build geometry on. And the fifth one is this mess, but it's that one we just described. Basically, there's a parallel line, parallel to one other parallel line. So we have five postulates from, from which Euclid builds all of geometry. And so we're going to come back to our verse in a minute. But when, when we think about this beginning of wisdom, when we think about this from a mathematical perspective, I say we have... You know, Euclid took five postulates and built all of geometry out of this. He starts with these five assumptions, these five things he's going to accept true without proof, and then say, I can build all the rest of this universe from these five assumptions. All right? So as someone who's studied mathematics for, for some time, I come to a verse like Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I look at this and say, this is my starting point. What are all the logical consequences of believing this, of the fear of the Lord, of knowledge of the Holy One, bringing understanding. So we can stop and think. You've probably heard many sermons on this. You know, the fear of the Lord is minimally, you know, getting an accurate understanding of who God is and who we are before him. He's God, we are not. He's perfect. He's sovereign. He is just. 
And knowing that leads us to consequences, leads us to thinking, a proper thinking about the world around us. God is holy, which also calls us to action. It makes us think about things that are not just temporal, but things that are external. It makes us think not only of things that are natural, but things that are, are supernatural. There is a God out there. And so it's a starting point from which we can build a proper view of the world. What are the logical consequences? Well, this is how I started to think about it. I started thinking about Proverbs 9.10 as a starting point. And I say, okay, if, if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, if, if true application comes from understanding who we are in relationship to him, how does that impact my understanding of art, of music? How does that impact my understanding of mathematics, of science, of literature, of film, of business, of history? I forgot many. But impacts my understanding of everything if I look at it through the, the lens of who is God and who am I in relationship to him? Those are the easy ones because that's just like academic. But then I have to start thinking, how does this impact my understanding of my life? Service. Why do I serve? Who, who, who do I serve and why? My thinking about money, about time. If the fear of the Lord is beginning of wisdom, I need to start with who the Lord is and then build from that point into all areas of life and knowledge. And that's how a mathematician thinks. I start at one point, what are the logical consequences of those things? Now, this is where I started to think about this verse, but we're going to do part two of our math lesson. I know, you thought you were past it, right? Part two, this is the fun part. By fun, I mean complicated. All right. <laughs> so, we have these five postulates, and you'll notice the elegance of the first four. Two points, you can make a segment. Then you can make a line. You can make a circle. Right angles are congruent. And then you have this mess, number five. So mathematicians for hundreds of years said, what if we don't need to assume this messy number five? What if I only needed the first four? And I could build the fifth one out logically from the first four. So mathematicians tried over and over again. Can we just assume four things? Maybe Euclid assumed too many. Maybe we only needed four, and we could build everything else out from that. Mathematicians tried, tried to prove number five from the first four, tried to prove number five from the first four. Then came along my favorite mathematician, and everyone's favorite, not really, it should be Euler, Carl Friedrich Gauss. All right, Carl Gauss. Um, he was actually on a piece of currency. If you look up uh, the 10 Deutschmarks from Germany years ago, he's on, you know, they, they put mathematicians on their money. We put presidents on our money. You can conclude whatever you want to from that. Uh, but Gauss is my favorite mathematician. I wouldn't argue the greatest mathematician of all time. I would argue that's Leonard Euler, but you can study that some other day. But Gauss was this, this person who pretty much everything he dug into, he succeeded. You know, when he, he was a boy, he like elementary school, he started building what, what you study in algebra too. Um, by the time he was 17, he proved the fundamental theorem of algebra again. By the time he was 19, he, he worked on, and this is why... He, he was, he, was, he was really, really good. Uh, he worked on the construction of a heptadecagon. It's a 17-gon using just a straight edge and compass. You may have done that a little bit in geometry. But he did that by the time he was, by, by the time he was 19. He did the heptadecagon. Mathematicians have been trying to do that for 2,000 years. He got up one day and said, I'm going to take care of this one. And so if you read Gauss's journal, what he does like every day, if you read his journal, he does in a day what most mathematicians do every five to 10 years. So this guy, he said, I put my mind to it, it's taken care of, all right? So Gauss took, took on this problem. Can I prove the fifth one from the first four? 
And Gauss, rightly so, over and over again, I think he really thought, if I can't do it, no one can. So he gave it a try. And as he went through, what did he find out? He couldn't. And so no one really can. That was his real conclusion. But something weird popped out when he tried to do this. He said, all right, suppose the fifth one is an assumption. It's not a consequence of the first four. And I come back to this question, this parallel postulate, and say, in a plane, for any infinite straight line L and a point P not on it, how many infinitely extending straight lines pass through P and do not intersect L? And you all answer, one. Gauss said, hmm, what if it's not one? What if it's different? All right. So Gauss said, what if infinitely many straight lines do that? And you say, that's impossible. Gauss said, but what if? And he started to say, I'm going to change Euclid's fifth postulate to not say one, but to say infinitely many, and see what happens. Because the whole geometry should break down if we change it. So he, rebuilt, he wrote all of Euclid's elements, but with a different assumption. And it turns out, it's just as good as Euclid's geometry. So he told some friends about it, you know, his mathematician friends. We all have lots of mathematician friends. Um, Lobachevsky, Poincaré, Bollier, some others. And they said, ooh, let's try it a different way. What if we change it from one to zero? What happens then? And they also built equally valid geometries by changing the assumption to zero. All right, so we're going to study the one where it's zero. <clears throat> it's the one that's infinite. The one that Gauss built is hard to understand. But this one we can understand. So I want you to think for a minute about a straight line, but a different kind of surface. So right now, if I asked you to get up and start walking forward, you have the power now to walk through walls. You can walk on water, but just walk forward. Keep walking, keep walking, 25,000 miles, you will end up where? Right back to where you started. Okay? So he's going to use that as a straight line, right? Walk in a straight line, where do you end up? Right back where you started. Okay, and if there's one straight line, then there must be many straight lines, all right? And from all these straight lines, you can form a triangle, all right? Remember, we started with some of the interior angles of triangles, 180 degrees. So let's exist in this world for a minute of straight lines. <clears throat> Everyone start at the North Pole in your mind. It's very cold, okay? You start walking south. Walk all the way to the equator, all right? Take a left-hand turn, 90 degrees. You're walking along the equator for, I don't know, 3,000 miles. That would be nice. All right, walk along the equator. It's very hot. All right, and you turn left, 90 degrees. Which way are you headed? Due north, back toward the, toward the North Pole. You go north all the way back to the North Pole. Now let's think about it. We just formed a triangle. It's technically a spherical triangle is what it's called. You start at the North Pole. You come down the equator. Head east. Go back north. Let's talk about the angles. We had a... 90-degree angle, we turned at the equator. A 90-degree angle, we turn at the equator. We have footprints going away from the North Pole and coming back in. They form an angle, let's say, 30 degrees. 30 plus 90 plus 90 is not 180. Okay? And so in this geometry, you have a completely different result. So in Euclidean geometry, you start with five postulates, one about parallel lines. You have a consistent system, and the triangle sum is 180. Spherical geometry of five postulates, one about parallel lines, consistent system, the sum of the angles of a triangle is more than 180 every single time. Okay. Now, by the way, what we're not doing here is biblical integration of mathematics. This is an analogy that's going to teach us a little bit of a lesson. 
okay? So in these two geometries, we start from two very different places, one line versus zero lines parallel. Start from two very different places, and you have two systems that just, they make sense, right? On the surface of the globe, it makes sense. On a flat plane, it makes sense. It's two different universes that make sense. I come back to my verse as a mathematician, all right? And I say, all right, I have a world that makes sense to me if I follow this, right? The fear of the Lord, knowing who God is and who I am with respect to God, leads to a certain set of consequences that make sense. However, there's other places people can start where they say things that seem to make sense. Because they're starting with different assumptions, a different starting point in life. They may start, you know, some people start believing that the natural world is all there is. There is no supernatural. You start from that starting point, you're going to lead, it will lead to certain consequences about your life, about what you believe about every subject we study, about what you believe how we should live. Some people believe that there's a natural world and a spiritual world. You know people who like, they're spiritual people, but they don't believe that there's a God who's the sovereign Lord of the universe. They just believe that there's... There's God. Maybe we're part of God, I'm not sure. But if you start from that starting point, you end up with certain consequences that make sense in your world, but don't correspond to the reality of the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Let me see if I give you a couple of examples. So I was sitting at, you know, you're sitting at the uh, at, at table at Christmas and someone's talking about, oh, they're, they're in a relationship with so-and-so. And they decided, you know, we're going we're gonna to move in together for a while, and we're going to try it out, see if it works, and then we'll see if we get married, if it works out. All right? From a certain perspective, that makes a lot of sense. We're going to try it. Life is an experiment. Let's see what happens, see what works. We'll give it a whirl, and maybe we'll get married someday. So there's consequences to different ways of understanding the world. And some things, and, you, you, and we do this too, right? We hear certain things, we start nodding our head, goes, yeah, that makes sense. And then we start to think about how the truth of the Bible comes to bear on that, that, that idea, and we go, oh, wait, wait, no, 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 that doesn't make sense. We, we come right in like the bobblehead, like, we just, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And so these different perspectives lead us to thinking incorrectly, but it seems to make sense. And when I, when I think of it this way, so if just two very different starting points, and there's lots of different starting points that we can begin with, but if the natural world is all there is, this still makes sense. Versus if I live in light of the fear of the Lord, something else makes sense. So if the natural world is all there is, it might make sense that I seek my own pleasure. Right? But if I live in light of the fear of the Lord, my life is there to seek the good of others. You know? If the natural world is all there is, then maybe I'm asking the questions, what can my wife do for me? But if I live in light of the, the fear of the Lord, I say, what can I do for my wife? If I live my life in light of the natural world as all there is, I might, it's okay to lie and to cheat, to get ahead, as long as you don't get caught, right? Because there's consequences. It's okay. It makes sense. But in light of the fear of the Lord, there's an integrity I have to live my life with. Here's a harder one. All right. If I live my life, and if the natural world is all there is, I may live my life, you know, wasting time any way I want to. After all, it's my time. I can waste it. 
Now, I gotta watch my step here, right? Because we all have things that we waste time with, we have to be very careful. There's a theology of leisure. But I know for myself, you know, when it comes to, to wasting time, there's a reason I will not play Fortnite. All right? I know my problems, okay? I've been addicted to too many games, you know? And so I'll download the right thing. And other times, my wife goes, hey. I'm like, oh, delete that app because it's been taking up too much of my time. Or, you know, for me, another place it was, and I realized there's good use of time, but there could be a waste of time. I used to watch 82 Flyers games every season. All right? I love the Flyers. And I realized, oh, wait a minute, 82 games times three hours a game. Am I using all of my time quite well? Because it's not my time. Whose is it? It's the Lord's time, right? And so when I start from this starting point of fear of the Lord, it leads to a different life, a different path I'm going to take. You know, if, if the natural world is all there is, then maybe I don't need to care for the poor, or the widows, or the orphans, unless somehow it gets me ahead, right? But if I live my life in, in light of the fear of the Lord, I must care for the poor and the needy, the orphans. And so my life is different if I start from a different starting point. It's a different, think about that one triangle or zero triangle. It's a different world that, that I see. And I also, I look outside and I say, you know, I talk to friends, I talk to uh, acquaintances, I talk to family. Their, their world's kind of making sense to them a little bit. I think it's an empty world. I think it's a world that, that does not correspond to the reality of, of what God made. But they're trying to make sense of it. I'm not going to get upset that they come to this conclusion. After all, they're starting from a different starting point than I am. I do love, you guys, were you one of those kids that kept asking why all the time? Why? Why? What? I have two kids. They're, they're 13 and 15 now. They'll be 14 and 16 next month. Yes, two teenage girls. It's been, it's been fun. Um, <laughs> they are great, though. I will say that. Uh, but, but, you know, I always encourage that go keep asking why. Why? 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 Because if you keep asking why and asking why, you have to come back to what are those base assumptions you have, those, those pictures you have of the world. I saw it as a way to teach every single time. Did I have all the why answers every time? No, I went and looked them up if I could. But you keep coming back to why, why, why. And what I found over and over again, when you keep pursuing that trail of why, 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 what are those underlying pieces? For me, the answer always came back to, well, because either that's the way God set it up, that's the way God made it, or because that's the impact of sin on the way God made it. It gives a full picture. Whenever you have people with different perspective, ask them, pursue the why, why. Why do you believe that? Why do you believe that? Why do you think that? See what they come back to. It frequently is very empty. And I think we have a very full answer to the why, 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 why train. Second half of the verse talks about the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. What are these, what are these other things that should come to bear? I just have a couple. It comes back to what you sang about earlier, right? We have a triune God of the Bible who lived eternally in perfect community. What are the consequences of that? The Holy One created us and has given us purpose. What are the consequences of that? I think about this. While we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Christ died for us. What are the consequences of that? How about this one? Christ physically rose from the dead. What are the consequences of that? Let's look at the first one. Look at this quickly. Timothy Keller in the book, The Reason for God, I'm going to use some of his stuff. He said, if God were not triune, but God were unipersonal, he could have, from eternity, been powerful and sovereign. He could have been great. 
but love would not be the essence of who he is. He says that we believe the, the, the world was made by a God who is a community of persons who have loved each other for all eternity. So the consequence of that, in his essence, God is love. And so there's a consequence of that. We, have, we are living in that world that that triune God created. It has consequence in how I think and how I live. Uh, Keller continues and says, you were made for mutually self-giving, other-directed love. And it's self-centeredness that destroys the fabric of what God has made. There's a certain way we need to live in light of who God is. How about the second one? The Holy One created us and has given us purpose. You are not an accident. Your life matters. All lives matter. This has significance to us as believers in how we live and how we interact with others. My goal, and I took my kids to Disney thousands of times. I, I like Disney. It's fun. But my goal is not to be true to myself. My goal is not to find myself, or American girl, find my inner star, right? That's not my goal. My goal is to be who God made me and discover who he has me to be. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and Christ died for us. As Good Friday approaches, let's think about what this means to live our life, knowing that Christ died for us. For me, over and over again, it comes back to, I know how much God has graciously forgiven me. And so I must, over and over again, forgive others, and forgive others, and forgive others. Finally, Christ physically rose from the dead. What are the consequences of that? I love these. I will rise one day, unless Christ returns first. I will rise one day. I'll live with Christ forever. Death has no mastery over us. I love that consequence. I can live fearlessly following God. Because, I, because in the end, he wins. And therefore, I win. Just a few thoughts. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. There can be different universes out there. Makes sense to one person, makes sense to another, but there's, there's a truth. This is, this is where the analogy breaks down. There is one true way. There may be a way that seems right to man. But after that, God's going to have his say in the end. And as, as I look at this, I say, am I living my life consistent with these set of assumptions, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Do I fear the Lord as I should? I'm confident the answer is no, but I'm striving to. Is that fear then leading to wisdom? Am I looking at how knowing who God is and who I am, how does that impact my understanding of everything I study, everything I do, everything I know? Am I pursuing knowledge of the Holy One? This isn't just my daily devotions. This isn't everything I do. Am I looking for who God is in that situation and how he interacts with the world around me? Am I gaining understanding from that? I left you with lots of questions, and that's okay. We always have lots of questions. But I want to finish off with one more passage. It's from 1 Corinthians 1. I'll read this to you. This is a couple of verses in 1 Corinthians. And it, in light of this picture of where we start matters, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, 
to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. We're going to hear lots of times in our lives something that seems to make sense at first, but we have to go back and review what are those underlying assumptions. Are we coming from the fear of the Lord and an understanding of the Holy One when we nod yes and say, yeah, I agree with that? I ask myself that question all the time. I'm confident I make errors all the time too. But we have to pursue it and continue to pursue it as believers. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for today. Thank you for each student here. Thank you for the opportunity to think about your word and who you are and how it impacts our lives. I ask that you would teach us, that your Holy Spirit would teach us what it means to fear you, fear you and to live in light of the world you made. I pray that for each of our students, for myself, for our faculty, staff, for everyone in our community, that we, we learn to be wise by following you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.